Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. If you have a copy of God's Word, join me in the sixth chapter of Paul's letter to Rome. Romans chapter 6, that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. This is week two of a seven-part series entitled Seven. Uh, We're just dealing with basically the seven basic commands of Jesus. What I've found is that no matter who you are or what your background is, spiritually or otherwise, um, there there comes a time in every Christian's life when they just need to go back to the basics. Because no matter how sophisticated you are or think you are, occasionally you just have to go back to those more rudimentary parts of your faith and reroot yourself in those foundational commands of Jesus. Because if you don't do that over time, that foundation is going to crumble. And last week, we looked at Jesus' command to repent. We talked about what that meant, what sometimes we need to be willing uh, for it to cost us in order for us to get there. And this week, we look at another command that Jesus gives us in Scripture. It begins, actually, in Matthew chapter 28, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to come back to this particular verse in a a later part of our series together, but today I want to focus on that phrase, baptizing them. And if the explicit command of Jesus to those of us who are disciples is to baptize, then the inference in that command is that those who are made to to be disciples are to be baptized. That's what we're going to spend our time on today. What does that mean? Because for that reason, because Jesus commanded this right to be performed, and he commanded all of us who follow him to submit to it, and so baptism, naturally, as a result, has been practiced in various forms by every tribe of Christianity for basically the entire history of the church. For the last 2,000 years, we've been doing this in one form or another as the body of Christ. And over that 2,000-year history, there have been multiple understandings that have emerged, multiple forms, sometimes splits would occur as the body divided over its differences, over questions like who should be baptized, what is the proper mode of baptism, what is the proper administrator of baptism. And sometimes it can seem like we're just arguing over minutiae. Sort of like that proverbial theological question about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. At the end of the day, we all say, who cares, don't we? And sometimes that these these questions and these arguments about baptism can seem very trivial like that. And so the temptation is to be well-meaning, but at the same time, maybe a little bit trite and just say, look, none of that matters anyway. The only thing that matters is that you follow Jesus. How you've been baptized, where you've been baptized, what the mode of your baptism was, none of that matters. Just believe in Jesus. Now, here's the problem with that. As well-meaning as it is, it just ain't true. It's just not. I'm going to submit to you that if Jesus thinks something is important, you and I as, as his disciples ought to think it's important. Amen? And Jesus, with abundant clarity, tells us in the New Testament that baptism is important. Now, does that mean that people who may believe differently than me or differently than our church, that they're beneath us? No, that's not what that means at all. 
Does that mean that they're less our brothers and sisters in Christ? Nope. Does that mean they're going to hell? Absolutely not. But those aren't the questions we're asking this morning. We're not asking who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. We're not asking who's a better Christian. We're asking a really simple question, actually. What does the Bible actually teach about this rite called baptism? What does it teach? And so we're going to spend this time together diving deeply into this subject for that reason. Now, I want, to know, I want you to know this. As I begin this message, I, I have full awareness that I'm talking to a room full of people that have diverse backgrounds when it comes to this issue. Some of you were sprinkled as infants. Some, some of you were poured on as infants. Some of you were baptized later, but maybe it was by a mode different than what I'm going to talk about. Uh, one of the strengths, I think, of the covenant family is we have people from multiple denominational backgrounds. I'm thankful for that. I think in most cases, it makes our church stronger. And so what I don't want you to hear over the next several minutes is that Joel's trying to pick a fight just for the sake of picking a fight. I recognize the differences. I also recognize that because I have to submit to you the clear teaching of Scripture, that I'm going to probably say some things today that may make some folks uncomfortable. And if, that, if you're one of those people, I want you to know, number one, I love you. Number two, you're just as much a part of this family as anybody else. We want you here. Number three, we want to hear your story and we want to talk to you. But number four, we also just need to be honest about what the Word of God says about this particular thing. Because here's the thing, I, I'm not interested at all in some denominational tradition. I, I'm not doing this to aim at, at somebody else's denomination. I'm not doing it for the sake of my own denominational loyalty. I'm not trying to maintain some sort of traditionalism. What I'm about to teach is what Covenant Church believes. It's in our confessional statement because we believe with all of our hearts that what I'm about to teach represents the very words of Jesus. All right? So bear with me as we deal with four primary questions around baptism. The first one should be pretty obvious. What is baptism? What is this thing called baptism? As simply as I can put it to you, baptism is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. A, a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. For the last 25 years of my life, I've been wearing this gold band around the third finger of my left hand. Now, that ring by itself means absolutely nothing. If I take it off, I'm still just as much a married man with this ring off as I am when I put it back on. Conversely, if I'm a single man and I walk around with a ring like this on my finger, it doesn't make me married. It might make me dumb, in fact, if I'm looking for a mate, but it doesn't make me married. The symbol in and of itself really doesn't mean anything, but the symbol corresponds to something that's truly powerful, which is what makes the symbol important. There's not a spouse in this room, particularly a wife, who would say that this ring is unimportant or that this ring doesn't matter. Even though the ring doesn't make me married, even though the presence of a ring doesn't make me married, the absence of a ring doesn't make me single, that doesn't make the ring itself unimportant. It is a physical symbol of some powerful union that's happened in my life. And you, you ask any wife in this room, they'll tell you it's important. You know why? Because the ring is a mark, isn't it? When other people, particularly other women, see a man and they see this, it means something, or at least it should, right? It means that guy is taken. That woman is already marked. That person has already entered into a covenant, and they belong to another person. That's what baptism is. 
It's that same physical symbol that marks you as belonging to Jesus, and the reality it projects is actually found in the passage that Pastor Ted read to us at the outset of the worship service. So let's go back to Romans 6 now and look at what Paul says in this passage. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now there's a couple of things you need to know about this statement. The first is that when you see the word baptism there, it literally means to immerse. The Greek word baptizo often gets transliterated. In other words, alphabet to alphabet rather than language to language. And so in nearly every English translation, you see the word baptize. That's actually just a Greek word in English lettering. It's not an English word. The English word that translates baptizo is actually the word to immerse. And, and we're going to get to that in just a, in just a few moments, uh, the importance of it. But the second thing I want you to see is the context of Romans 6. Paul's addressing a question here. All through, all the way up until this point, he's been dealing with the questions that the church of Rome have either been asking literally or questions that he is anticipating that they're going to ask. And now he's dealing with this question. If salvation really is by grace, if it's not by works, if it's not by me submitting to baptism, if it's not by me performing certain ways, if it's not by obedience to the Ten Commandments, if salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as Paul has abundantly and clearly declared in the previous five chapters, if all of that's true, then does that mean that I can just live however I want? Is it true that where sin abounds, grace does there much more abound? If that's true, then shouldn't I just sin to the hilt so that God's grace would cover me? That's the question that Paul's answering here. And he says, absolutely not. This is not the way that you should live, principally because you have received a new nature that if you truly belong to Jesus, you're not going to desire sin. There, there's going to be something different. Your disposition towards sin is going to be different. If by grace you have been saved, that's the new nature that you've received. And that has put to death your desire for sin. And so what he's describing in these four verses is not primarily a physical act of baptism. Remember when I said baptism is a, a physical act, a physical symbol that represents spiritual truth, spiritual transformation that's happened. He's actually describing that spiritual transformation, and it actually becomes more clear if we will actually translate rather than transliterate what he tells us in Romans 6. So take a look at Romans 6 in this way when we have substituted the word immersion for the word baptism because baptism means immersion. You begin to see this spiritual reality. Do you not know that all of us who have been immersed into Christ Jesus were immersed into his death? Now think about that for a minute. If you jump into a pool, you are immersed in that water, right? You tell me how you can be immersed in water and be dry at the same time. You can't do it, can you? And Paul says similarly, you cannot be immersed in Christ and still be covered in sin and still act in sin and still have that willful act of rebellion. You can't do it. We were buried with him by immersion into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so this is the truth of baptism. This is the truth of baptism. When you are baptized... You are declaring symbolically something that has profoundly changed your life. Just like me. This wedding ring means that on July the 30th, 
1994, everything changed for Joel Rainey. That's what it means, doesn't it? It means on that day, Joel gave up his right to determine his own choices apart from somebody else. It means that on that day, I died to a life of individual autonomy, and I was raised to the reality of communion with a woman that God had given to me and me to her in the covenant of marriage. And brothers and sisters, baptism indicates that same kind of symbol, but it symbolized something much more powerful than just something about marriage. It symbolizes that I am dead to my old self. I've been immersed into Jesus and his body through his death and resurrection, and I too am now raised up a new man. Baptism is important because it symbolizes that reality. It's a physical symbol that corresponds to a spiritual reality. That answers the what question. So now we have to answer the why question. Why should I be baptized? Why, why should anyone submit to this particular observance. Let me give you three reasons for that. Number one, because it follows Jesus' example. Look at the following account that we find in Matthew chapter three. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Is there any other legit, more legitimate reason to do something than to look in the New Testament and see that Jesus did it and to want to follow Jesus? That's what he did. And, and the reason he did it is stipulated in the wider context of this passage. He's going down into the Jordan River and John, John the baptizer, his old burlap-wearing, bug-eating, stinky cousin. That's John. Rough around the edges, doesn't sugarcoat anything, and here comes Jesus. And Jesus requests baptism, and John kind of freaks out. If you'll read that wider narrative, he's like, whoa, I think, Lord, I, man, how do I correct him? He's God. At the same time, I shouldn't be doing this. This ought to be reversed. I should be the subject of baptism. You should be the one putting me underwater. And Jesus insists that this happen for this reason. He said it must be done to fulfill all righteousness. Because some of us, I know I, I used to ask this question, I'm like, why did Jesus need to be baptized? He didn't have any sin to repent of. He didn't have any, there was no symbol of him dying to his old self. He was perfect. He never sinned. When he rose, when he rose from the dead, that was the initiatory uh, symbol by his coming up out of the water. He, he had no reason because he had no sin. But a lot, of it, a lot of his answer is found in that phrase, to fulfill all righteousness. He's essentially saying to John, I have come to submit to this because I'm identifying with fallen man that, I'm, that I came to save. I'm identifying with fallen humanity that I came to save. Jesus did it, blunt, just to put it bluntly, because it was what he was supposed to do. This is something that we're supposed to submit to. Jesus knew that. So as a man, he submits to it because he wants to be obedient to the Father's will. And so when you and I submit to baptism, we're now following the example of Jesus, but we're also obeying the command of Jesus. This takes us back to Matthew 28. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Do you notice how closely together those two commands are related? You make disciples, and part of that disciple-making process is baptism. Simply put, there is no such thing as an unbaptized disciple. There's just not. 
Those people do not exist. The New Testament doesn't recognize those things. Because, just to put it bluntly, if you're unbaptized, you're not obeying Jesus. How in the world can you claim to follow someone when you disobey one of their clearest commands? Jesus says, this is about, and you may say, well, I don't know what that has to do with my everyday life. I don't understand. It's not your, it's not your business to question. God has spoken. He's been abundantly clear about this. You're either going to do it or you're going to be disobedient. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. You will make disciples, and part of that process is baptizing. So this follows the commands of Jesus. Thirdly, it symbolizes his own death and resurrection. Now, in Colossians, we get a, a picture of this from the Apostle Paul. He says in Colossians 2.12, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now that's something, if you'll notice, that, that language should sound familiar to you if you're a regular part of the covenant family because every time we perform a baptism here, you hear something of those words, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. Paul says that's what should be symbolized in this act, in this rite. The effect on your life is your own death to sin and your own resurrection to new life. Now that brings up a question. Does baptism save you? And the clear answer from Scripture is no, it doesn't. Does the lack of baptism on its own keep me from entrance into the kingdom of God? No. How do I know that? Look at these words from Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In fact, uh, not only does baptism not save you, but without a genuine, life-transforming encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ that changes your new nature, the only thing that's going to happen if you get in that tank is you're going to go down dry and come up wet. Why would you mess up your hair and your clothes for something that was effectively meaningless? Why would you do that? It has to be accompanied by a life-transforming encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. But don't conflate the question, does baptism save, with the question, must I be baptized? They sound the same, don't they? They're not the same. One is what is the result if this doesn't happen, but the other one is, is this something the Lord requires of me? Does this get me to heaven? No. Does Jesus require it? Yes. Unqualified yes. This, above all reasons, is why I must be baptized. And let me ask you this question. Why wouldn't you want to anyway? I mean, think about what this means for a moment. If Jesus has truly changed your life, wouldn't you want to make that declaration public? Wouldn't you want to do that? I mean, think for a moment about the, what Jesus said. If you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. But if you refuse to confess me before men, I will not confess you before my Father. Jesus wants our declaration in him, our faith. He wants that to be public. Now, how many of you are introverts? This is the most ironic question you can ask in a room with hundreds of people. Raise your hand now and identify yourself in front of all these people as an introvert. 
So I know that not everybody's going to raise their hand, right? Most of you are probably like that. You've got extroverts, guys like me, that, you know, we got a, we, we got a heck of a day today. I, this is the second time I get to preach the gospel, so I'm going to have a buzz after this is done. And then we got dinner tonight to celebrate the debt being paid off. It's going to be a phenomenal day. And when I collapse in my chair tonight, I'm going to be tired. I'm like exhausted, but I'm not going to be able to go to sleep. I'm just not going to be able to do it because it's been an exciting day and I'm sitting there like that squirrel in the movie Over the Hedge. I'm just sort of, you know, I can't go to, I can't go to sleep. If I go to lay down, it's just, I'm just going to stare at the ceiling. And you know why that is? Because I'm an extrovert. Because I've been hanging around with you guys all day and you give me energy. And those of you who are extroverts, introverts right now are looking at me going, there is something wrong with you. Because you're going to be exact opposite. It's not like you, you hate everybody. You're, you're looking forward to the day too. But the presence of all these people around you, it, kind of, it doesn't give you energy. It sucks all the energy out of you. And by the time you're done, you're just exhausted and you're ready to go to bed. And for introverts, I think probably one of the scariest passages in the Bible for an introvert is when Jesus says, you need to confess me publicly before men. Did you know that through baptism, you have the opportunity to obey those words without speaking a word? In fact, did you know that through submitting to baptism, you get to symbolize something that is more powerful than any sermon this old boy could ever preach? Death to myself, raised to walk in newness of life, grounded in a moment in history when my Savior was crucified for my sins and buried and rose again. What a powerful symbol. Why in the world would anybody who follows Jesus not want to give themselves to that particular moment? That's the why. That's the why. And then that provokes a third question, a question that, that requires us to look at a little bit of history in the church, and that is, who should be baptized? And this one's tricky. If you come from different, you know, denominational backgrounds or over the course of your Christian life, maybe you've been a, you were a Presbyterian for a while and then a Methodist and somehow we, you found your way into the, the covenant family, you're, you're like, yeah, I've gotten different answers to that question, Pastor. I really, I really don't understand. Well, that's because it, there's a complicated history behind this that we need to look at. And it's the point, I'll just be honest with you, where covenant as a faith community will separate itself apart from many other churches. It's not because we don't believe there are brothers and sisters, but it's because we want to be faithful to Scripture. So on the question of who should be baptized, let me begin by saying this, with, and this is just abundantly clear when you look at the history of the church. This question, who should be baptized, during the time of the New Testament had one and only one uniform answer, and it was converts. People who have willingly recognized their sin, asked the Lord for forgiveness, put their faith in his substitutionary death for their sin, his resurrection that guarantees them life in the next world, put their faith in Christ. People who have been converted recognized all of that. There's not a single time in all of Scripture where we find anybody identified as a candidate for baptism who had not first been individually converted. You can't find that anywhere in the Bible. But beginning around the third century, there was an African bishop by the name of Cyprian. You can see him up there in the top left. 
And Cyprian, in answer to several questions that were coming at him, apparently, as best as we can mirror read those historical documents about the, the death of infants, what happens to my baby, what happens to my toddler, if God forbid something happens and they go from this life into the next one, do they go to heaven, do they go to hell, what happens to that child? And Cyprian began to teach that baptism actually removes the original sin from that child. And so as a result, it becomes necessary to baptize that child. And you go, well, then why did they sprinkle? Well, because even in the ancient world, they had the good sense to know you can't take a baby and junk, dunk it underwater. That's abusive. All right? And so you've got to figure out some way to do this. And so sprinkling, effusion, or the pouring over the head became another way that this would, would happen. But Cyprian was insistent that, it, and, and you've got to think about this for a minute, if this is true, if baptism actually removes your sin, then it would only make sense that as soon as humanly possible, you take that infant to a priest and you allow that baptism to take place. 150 years later, Augustine, over on the right, confirmed the teaching of Cyprian in his own writings. 800 years after that, the great Catholic philosopher Thomas Aquinas, bottom left, confirmed this and codified it into official Catholic doctrine. And so for 1,300 years, from the 200s to the 1500s, the church, not all of the church, but by and large, the overwhelming majority of the church taught that baptism removes sin and therefore infants should be baptized. And then came the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and during that period, those who led that movement of the restoration of the biblical gospel, they rejected the idea that baptism saves in any way. We can all be thankful for that. And so you're, our Protestant brothers and sisters, uh, they may not always do it in the way we at Covenant believe it should be done, but they do not believe that baptism saves it, or that it has any efficacy at all to get you into the kingdom of God. They rejected that as early as the first generation of the Reformation. But many of those traditions that emerged out of that, Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, Methodism, and others, continued to subject infants to baptism. And that, that position is called paedobaptism. It comes from the same word from which we get our English word pedagogy that, that refers to the, the development or the education of a child. Paedobaptism, the baptism of children. In fact, I've got a dear friend of mine that I was in seminary with 20 years ago. Uh, love him. We still interact occasionally. Uh, he found out in seminary, came to the conclusion that God had not, in fact, called him to ministry, which is a noble thing for a man to admit to himself. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, used to say that too many men are called by their mother rather than by God, and they miss their true calling as a result and somehow stumble into a pulpit. Well, my friend Matthew made the right decision. He said, you know, this isn't what I'm supposed to do. I'm not going to pursue theology. I'm going to pursue the law. And so he's now a practicing attorney in the state of Tennessee. And he and I will, will interact occasionally. We just have a good time together, uh, mostly over social media. We don't talk a whole lot face-to-face -face because of the, the physical distance. But, but along that route, uh, somewhere along the way, my friend also became a Presbyterian. Now, I love Presbyterians. My son goes to a Presbyterian school. But uh, interesting, interestingly enough, when my firstborn came to know the Lord, he was around nine years of age, and I, I got the opportunity to baptize him, which the three baptisms that I cherish the most as a pastor out of the probably thousands that I've conducted, those three, Sam, Seth, and Gracie, those are my three. Like, that's that. That matters the most to me. And if you're a parent, you understand what I'm talking about. And so I was celebrating. I was thanking God for what he'd done in my oldest son's life. And my Presbyterian friend Matthew put down in the comments, with a little wink and a nod, of course, he was just kind of kidding around. He said, it's about time. 
Because according to his thinking, I should have done this a long time ago. And so you may wonder, well, where does that come from exactly? Where does it come from? Well, and, and moreover, why is that distinction important? Like you, you say you guys are friends and it's no big deal. Well, I, we're friends, but I don't think either one of us would say it's no big deal. We would both confess this issue is incredibly important. And so if you're wondering where this comes from and where the point of contention is, you find that in Colossians chapter 2. Read these words with me from verse 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul, in this verse, makes an inextricable connection between circumcision, which was taught in the Old Testament, and baptism, which is the rite that Christians observe in the New Testament. So follow me. Really, I'm going to try to give you a real brief history of this, give you the backdrop on it. Abraham was given the rite of circumcision. He passed that down to the nation of Israel. God said to Israel, you are my covenant people. All the way up until the coming of Messiah, this is my covenant with each of you. And the sign of that covenant was that every male at eight days old had to be circumcised. That was a requirement. It marked them as being part of the covenant people. Paul comes along in the New Testament and he says, because the Old Testament law has been fulfilled in Christ, circumcision as a physical rite is no longer required of men, but instead what replaces that is something for both men and women, because in Christ there's no male or female, and that thing that replaces the physical circumcision is that which best symbolizes the circumcision of the heart, baptism. God has taken out of you a heart of stone, according to Ezekiel 26. He has replaced it with a heart of flesh. He has put his own fear within you so that you will not turn away from him. And what symbolizes that new nature, Paul says it's baptism. Now, here's where the point of contention starts. To our more strict covenantal friends, like my Presbyterian friends that I love dearly, they say, well, if circumcision and baptism are so inextricably linked, and circumcision, number one, was performed on infants, and number two, was performed on you because of who your family was, it only makes sense that baptism be administered to infants who are the children of parents who have confessed Christ and are therefore members of the covenant. That's effectively the view of paedobaptism. That's where it comes from. It comes from that understanding of Colossians chapter 2. I went to pick my son up at, uh, at, at, uh, after spring break just about a month ago. And as I walked into the lunchroom there, I told him, I said, I'm going to try to get there by lunchtime. And I, wanna, I just want to have lunch with you and your roommates. And they were all giggling with one another as I walked in. And I thought, this is strange. And uh, my son looked up at me and he goes, you know, it's kind of interesting. He's an engineering major, but because it's a Presbyterian school, he's got to take some Bible classes. And he says, just interesting that today's the day you're coming to pick me up. I said, why is that? He said, well, my New Testament professor just went through a, a, a narrative in Acts chapter 16 about the baptism of a woman and her household, and he was using that to demonstrate to us why credo-baptism is wrong and paedo-baptism is right. And I said, son, it's totally fine. We got a three and a half hour ride home, and I'll have you straightened out before we get to Pittsburgh. No problem, right? Now, why would I say something like that? Again, he's going to Presbyterian school. I love Presbyterians. Some of my greatest influencers theologically are Presbyterian. So why would I think this is an issue? Moreover, why do I think the scriptures set these two positions apart the way they do? Well, here's where covenant church 
Those of us who believe in credo baptism, which is you've got to be a convert before you submit to this, where, where do we find our position? Well, strangely enough, in exactly that same text. Look at what's embedded in that second chapter of Colossians. In which you were also raised in the powerful working of God. Paul assumes, even as he makes this connection between circumcision and baptism, the assumption is so deeply embedded in the text is that it cannot be denied that until the powerful working of God, the very same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead also raises you, not your mama, not your daddy, not your grandparents. You must be converted. And until that happens, you're not ready for baptism. You're not ready for it because you're just going to go down dry and come up wet. Now, if you, if you come from a Paedo-Baptist background, let me say this. I love you. And if you put your faith in Jesus, we believe you're our brother and sister. I don't think I'm better than you are. I don't think this church is better than the church that you came from. That, that's not the thing here. My issue in, in bringing all of this up is not to win a debate or to one-up the Presbyterians or the Episcopalians. That's, that's not why I bring this up today. I've already said some of my greatest theological, probably my greatest early theological influence was J.I. Packer, an Anglican. Whatever differences we would have on this, I am profoundly thankful for men of God like that. So that's not what this is about. But I want to acknowledge also that if you were sprinkled as an infant, I, I'm going to assume the best about that. More so, moreover, I'm going to assume that it was at the behest of parents, grandparents, guardians who believed what they believed, who loved you, and who requested that because they wanted your spiritual good. I think you should celebrate that. I don't think that's something that experience in and of itself needs to be rejected. I think it's a sign that you had parents, grandparents, guardians that loved you enough and they wanted your good. I think you should thank God for that, especially in a world where so few parents care about the spiritual development of their children. I don't think you should reject that at all. But I am going to submit that that experience, however meaningful, should not be equated with the experience of baptism that's described in the New Testament. That's a very different thing. Because what Jesus describes and commands of you and me can only be obeyed after you have been converted. That's the who question. So now the final one. How should I be baptized? What, what's this look like for me? Here's what we believe at Covenant. Because the etymology of the Greek term baptizo, it just cannot be denied. The etymology of the term on its own answers that question for us. To baptize is to immerse. It's to immerse. I was in Turkey several years back with some of our pastors in the network of churches that I served in Maryland, the state of Maryland, and a province in Turkey on the northern shore, on the shore with the Black Sea, uh, they were developing a sister state agreement, which would involve economic exchange, cultural exchange, prosperity and peace for all, all that sort of stuff. Now, this is before Erewhon went off the rails, okay, if you know anything about the history of Turkey and some of the political machinations that are happening over there right now. But at this point, we were, you know, the ISIS was, wasn't even a thing yet. The Syrian civil war was just getting started up. Uh, and so we were touring the whole country together with, with Muslim hosts and guides, and, and they took us, among other places, to the top of a mountain outside of ancient Ephesus. You can see the picture there. That's a picture of the Church of St. John. Timothy pastored that church, all right? 
It, now, that's all that's left of it. It was destroyed. Everything but that was destroyed by an earthquake in the fourth century. But our Muslim guide was, was carrying us through the different parts of the church and explaining the historical significance of various parts of this edifice, at least what was left of it. And then we came upon this big old hole in the ground. And he said, this was the baptismal font. Now, something you should probably know is that in Turkey, when you say the word Christian, most Turkish citizens, particularly those of Muslim background, think you're talking about Greek Orthodox, all right? So they have a very narrow understanding unless you broaden that understanding for them. You say Christian, that's what they think. And one of the reasons for that is because the head of the Greek Orthodox Church since prior to the fall of Constantinople has, has been headquartered in Istanbul. Um, and there's mutual respect and all of that there. And so, and so because of that, there's going to be confusion. You would think, you know, you'd understand this. And so our Muslim guide looks at this big old hole in the ground, and he's talking about this is where they used to perform baptisms. And then just sort of off the cuff, he says to all of us pastors, I don't know why they had to make the hole that big. And one of my pastor friends went, I, if it's permissible, I mean, I know we're on a historical artifact here, but if it's permissible for me to step down in there, I can show you. And he stepped down, and he said that we did it this way. They put, them all the way. they put them all the way under the water? Yeah. Then it was an opportunity for my pastor friend to talk about the gospel of Jesus and what that symbolizes. That's exactly what they did on that hill. You know why? That, that's exactly how the ancient church practiced it. And by the way, this is attested to not just by Scripture, but by the figures who founded some of the denominations today who sprinkle infants. Let me give you just three of them. Let's start with the, the, the one who ignited the whole Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, the founder of Lutherism, Lutheranism, said, I would have those who are baptized. Can't read the rest of that, guys. Thank you, sir. I would have those who are baptized to be entirely immersed as the word imports and the mystery signifies. John Calvin, who means an awful lot to my Presbyterian friends, means an awful lot to me, too. I am indebted to Calvin in many ways. And Calvin said this, the word baptized means to immerse. It is certain that immersion was the practice of the ancient church. And then John Wesley, that Anglican Episcopalian pastor who founded Methodism said, buried with him alludes to baptizing by immersion according to the custom of the ancient church. Now with that in view, I want you to look again at Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let me, let me just ask you a really honest question. I'm not trying to be argumentative. How can you symbolize death and resurrection by any other mode but immersion? How can you do that? I would submit that you can't. And this is, where, this is where we have to resist the temptation on the one hand to say that anybody that comes to a different conclusion is necessarily heretical, but on the other hand to not be so shallow and trite as to think it's spiritual to say this really doesn't matter. It does matter. Jesus speaks with abundant clarity to this. Brothers and sisters, if the words of God recorded in this book mean anything, if Jesus if we take his words with an ounce of the seriousness that we say we do, we're going to have to wrestle with this. Every one of you is going to have to wrestle with these words, with what they mean, and with whether they, we have been obedient by publicly 
by immersion, after conversion, declaring our faith through the waters of baptism. And if you think you're uncomfortable now, just thank God that you're living in the West. Um, Religious freedom, I love it. I'm for it. I'm part of a history, denominationally and otherwise, that, that fights to the death for it, even for people that don't agree with me. And I think that ought to exist everywhere in the world. But there's an underbelly to religious freedom. We're experiencing it in the West right now. Part of it is the marketing of Christianity, where pastors become more entrepreneurs and salespeople than they do sages and teachers and equippers of God's people. We're seeing that a lot. And part of that marketability is to just dumb down whatever we need to do in order to fill the seats. And this is one of those areas where where you see a lot of dumbing down. Well, this really doesn't matter. Why would you argue over something like this? Well, let me tell you a story that I just read last night. Like I literally had folded this outline up, put it in my iPad, and I was going to bed. I thought my sermon was done. And the Lord drew my attention to an article in Christianity Today written just yesterday in their online version by a friend of mine named Nick Ripkin. Now, that's not his real name. That's a pseudonym because of where he works through the infamous 1040 window. He really can't give you his real name uh, because his life is already on the line for some of the work that he does, particularly in the Middle East. And Nick told this story in that article in Christianity Today. He was in Mogadishu, Somalia when he got the call that a dear friend of his that he calls Pastor H. Pastor H was an Iranian pastor, faithful proclaimer of God's word, winning people to Jesus in that nation. And he'd been kidnapped by Muslims who had been radicalized and nobody knew where he was. Two weeks later, Nick is in Iran. He's sitting in this church. There are 38 candidates for baptism, all of whom have been won to Jesus by Pastor H. They get another phone call. Pastor H has been found, at least his body. A Muslim friend of theirs, sympathetic to who they are, who love them dearly, through tears, told them over the phone that he had snuck into a deserted field where he watched those radicals bury the pastor in a shallow, unmarked grave. Now, Upon hearing that news, one of the other pastors turned to those 38 candidates and he said, Pastor H, the man who led you to Jesus, the man who invested in you spiritually, the man who loved you enough that he was willing to face a death like this, to see you come to Christ, he's dead. Are you ready to be next? Now see that... That doesn't mean a whole lot to us because, again, baptism, it's just, we treat this like it's some trite theological argument. But let me tell you how the Muslim world looks at this. Radicalized or not, if you're in Iran, you're in Iraq, you're in Syria, you're in Turkey, and you're from a Muslim background, and you know what you have to give up in order to follow Jesus as a Christian, by and large, what it's going to cost you, you're, you're well aware of that. You can get caught reading the Bible and probably explain your way out of that. You can get caught sitting in a Christian church and you can explain your way out of that. But there's one thing that cannot be explained. Baptism in the Muslim mind is the point of no return. And so those who are more radicalized and would kill people from leaving for leaving Islam and going to another faith, 
That's their understanding, brothers and sisters, of baptism, that when an individual submits to baptism, they are declaring loudly and proudly, I no longer belong to Islam, I belong to Jesus, and I am Christian. And brothers and sisters, they're exactly right. That's exactly what baptism means. It's exactly what baptism means. And so that's why these individuals... It's more serious. Are you ready? Are you really ready to be baptized? Over there, how much more does that cost than it does over here? Let us not treat it so tritely merely because the cost is not so high. Jesus has given us a command. Jesus has commissioned us to obey that command, to call others to obey that command. And again, let me, I just got to ask this question. Why would you not want to do it? Is it necessary to go to heaven? No. If you haven't been baptized, are we saying we're better than you? No. Are you any less my brother or sister because you've experienced another mode of baptism? No, no. But none of those are the questions I'm asking. I'm asking two really simple questions. What did Jesus actually command you to do and will you obey? That's all I'm asking. Now, you have to go to the Scriptures, as the Bereans did after Paul himself preached, and see if I've understood this correctly. And if I'm right, some of you may have some work to do here. You may. This ring off my finger makes me no more single than I am when it's on my finger, but it makes a statement that I want to make. You ever lost a wedding ring? Anybody? It's, it's amazing, like you, 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 lose, like you really lost it. You don't just think you lost it, you lost it. And you go hunting for it for days, maybe even weeks, and you keep telling yourself, it's just a ring. And that's true. That's true. So why does it torture you so when you lose something like that? Because you know the truth of what I'm telling you right now. Symbols matter. How much more does this symbol matter? How much more? Does this symbol matter? I wear this ring because I want everybody to know that I'm a marked man. I want everybody to know that I belong to this woman over here and she belongs to me and that we are in covenant together. I don't ever want to be without this ring. And when we talk about the command of Jesus to be baptized, we're talking about something much more significant than a wedding ring. My baptism means something. I am also a marked man. All of me has been submerged because all of me belongs to Jesus. All of me has been brought up because all of me has been raised up. And I, have, I, I belong to him in covenant. The mark of baptism signifies that I have willfully and joyfully and unconditionally given my life to Jesus Christ. I don't want to ever be without that public witness. Ever. What is he commanding you to do? Will you obey? On your connect cards, I think it's actually on the back, there's actually a line there that says, I would like to be baptized. Before I pray with you today, I just want to ask you to do a couple things. Number one, if you've come to that conclusion today, why don't you just mark that and turn it in? And one of our pastoral staff will be in touch with you very quickly, very early this week to talk with you about what that means. Some of you, this has been a struggle for you, and I get that. Hear me when I say I love you. 
Hear me when I say I want to hear your story. And so if there's more, if you're like, uh, maybe, but I'm not sure yet, let me ask you to check that box anyway, and over on the other side, just put an asterisk on it. The only thing that's going to communicate to me is, Pastor, I still got questions. Let me tell you something about questions. We welcome them. Let me tell you something about stories, personal ones. We listen to them because we love the image bearers of God that are in front of us, and I want to hear that story, and I want to talk to you about this. But more than anything else, I want you to come to a conclusion, and I want you to walk in obedience to Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you, even for struggles like this that seem on the surface to not mean a whole lot until we consider what it meant to the ancient church what it means to our brothers and sisters abroad, particularly those who are living under the thumb of persecution in other places around the world. Lord, may we be obedient. May we immerse ourselves first in your word. May we come to conclusions that are grounded in scripture, and may we not blink from the moment that we come to those conclusions. May we just obey. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.